1: Also, I'd like to add, if you are a heavy daily drinker, please seek the help of a medical practitioner before quitting alcohol. This podcast comes to you from beautiful Bunjalung country. Please kick back and enjoy. Grab yourself your favorite alcohol-free bevy. And if you haven't already, do a gal a favor. Please subscribe, rate and review this podcast. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Monday Distillery. Monday Distillery is a new-age beverage company revolutionising the way we look at having a night out with friends. They make sophisticated, non-alcoholic beverages that are sugar-free and full of social graces. Now you can enjoy a good time, love what you drink and love yourself the next day too. Stay high in spirits, keep a clear mind. Cheers to Monday. Are you sick of feeling controlled by alcohol? Do you want to drink less? Do you wake up on a Sunday morning feeling really anxious and full of regret? I'm Danny Carr and welcome to my podcast, How I Quit Alcohol. Hi and welcome back to How I Quit Alcohol. Today in the Zoom room, I'm joined by the beautiful Ash Butters. I was lucky enough to be on Ash's podcast, Behind the Smile, Probably about four weeks ago now, I think it was. Ash is, as I said, she's the host of the Behind the Smile podcast. She's a writer and a yoga teacher, and she's an amazing sober human. So now it's nice to have you on the other side, Ash, and I can throw all the questions at you today. How are you?
0: I am so well. Thank you, Danny. Thank you for that awesome introduction. And it is so nice to be joining you here. As I mentioned on Behind the Smile, when you came onto the show, I've been a fan of how I quit alcohol since the very early days that I got sober. So it's such an honor to be here today.
1: Oh, that's so awesome. I love hearing that. I just, that really makes my heart sing. I'm so (laughs) stoked to hear that. Well, thank you. And thank you for having me on your podcast. I feel like we've been spending a lot of time together lately. We We did the Instagram live that was last week, and that was really fun and that was really nice. It's um, awesome, isn't it? And here we are again. I don't actually know your story. So this is fantastic. I get to kind of hear it all. Mm. So, like everyone else, can you tell me how
0: you got started with drinking and how it developed? Absolutely. Wow. It's crazy. You know, I'm coming up to three years of sobriety. I may already be three by the time this episode comes to air. And so it's interesting when you get to these milestones. I'm not sure if you've had the same experience, but you do. You spend a lot of time reflecting and looking back at what life was like before and the gratitude I have for what life looks like now. So to take it back for you, I grew up in an alcoholic home. So I'm the daughter of an alcoholic father and my mother is the daughter of an alcoholic father. So straight away, you can imagine there was a lot of generational trauma that was trickling down and really impacted the way that my parents parented, both my brother and I. And so my earliest memories are having a lot of alcohol in the house. And when I describe that to people, a lot of the time they assume that that's also coupled with violence. And for me, that wasn't actually the case. There wasn't a lot of outward violence, but there was a lot of arguing and a lot of raging. And for me, what that did from a really early age was it made me feel uneasy. And so I started to develop this baseline of what I call discontentedness, where I just wasn't really sure how to feel safe or how to land within my own body, within my own environment. And so from a really early age, I started to develop different ways of changing myself to suit whoever I was around at the time. So I became a bit of a chameleon or I describe it as wearing different masks. And I was always smiling. From the earliest age, if my parents had an argument, I would take on the role of nurturer and carer after the argument. So I'd sort of take a step back, watch it all blow up in front of my eyes. And then I'd step in and often it would be because my dad's MO was to bail, to leave. And so I would follow my mum into her bedroom. And I've got memories of being three years old, sitting under the Duna cover with my mum. She'd always get a hot bowl of eucalyptus and she'd put the Duna over her head and I'd climb into the bed and I'd sit with her while she cried and I'd wait until she stopped crying. And again, I was learning how to not ask for my my own needs to be met. And instead I was hyper-vigilant around what did everybody around me need? So it was almost like this peacekeeper identity that I formed. And the more that I started to do that, the more disconnected I became from who I really was. And like I said, I was really unclear on what I needed to be okay. And instead I was solely focused on making sure that everybody else, number one was okay, but even more so that everybody was approving of me because I had this really deep seated fear that if I wasn't perfect and that if you didn't like me, then you would leave me. So there was this really raw undercurrent of fear of abandonment that I've had for as long as I can remember. So this was many, many years before I discovered alcohol. That was sort of the environment that I was growing up in. And then when I did turn 12 years old, that's when I discovered alcohol well, what I should say is I knew what alcohol was prior to that, but what I discovered in that time was the effect that alcohol would have on me, and that's because I I tried drinking for the first time, and straight away from that very first experience, I remember I absolutely loved the effect because what it did for me was the voice that was so loud in my head at all times throughout the day, every waking minute that I was living and breathing, my voice in my head was telling me that I wasn't good enough that I. Wasn't wasn't lovable, that I needed to change who I was to be better and that everyone was going to leave me. And when I drank alcohol, all of a sudden that voice disappeared. And the only way I can really describe it is everything got quiet and everything became really peaceful. And that was the feeling that I then continued to chase for the next two decades I didn't necessarily take that first drink and then my life immediately became unmanageable. It was a really, really slow burn because what you need to remember here is that whilst I absolutely loved the effect that alcohol had on me, I also had this really big fear of abandonment. And so I had to make sure that my behavior and the way that I was and the way I showed up in the world was acceptable and appropriate. There was this juxtaposition of the girl who was showing up, going to school. I was a prefect at school. I was highly academic. I was part of the drama and music programs, you know, really focused on achieving all of these different accolades in the hope that would gain the attention of my parents. And I'd seek this approval that I'd always been craving. And then on the weekends, I'd be kissing boys, drinking alcohol, trying drugs, smoking cigarettes, doing all the things that I knew I wasn't meant to do. So I had this really perfectionistic identity. And then I also had this really rebellious identity. So there was never any congruency between the two. I was almost like split down the middle. And again, I keep going back to this idea of I was just felt so disconnected and I had no idea who I really was. This continued playing on for, as I said, a number of years. And for me, the progressive nature of this disease really snowballed within the last five years of my drinking. So I ended up after a string of failed relationships. And the way I describe it is I just kept blowing up my own life. There's this thing with how I am in the world. When things are going really well, I have this voice in my head that almost says to me, you don't deserve this and now it's time to essentially create chaos and now and it's not a conscious thought it's just something that i've noticed by being able to reflect on my behavior that time and time again prior to getting sober whenever i did have these moments of peace in my life i inevitably destroyed them and so it was after a broken relationship in 2014 that i decided to move to sydney and we often call this taking a geographical in sober circles. And that's exactly what I did. I picked up my life and I moved to Sydney and it was there that I ended up meeting the man that I would later marry. And he was an addict. And so we ended up falling into this very codependent enmeshed relationship where we would just enable one another because I couldn't call him out on his using if i was drinking every day and vice versa so we partied a lot and then we kind of just had to deal with the wreckage of what was what our relationship was becoming this went on for about 7 years but the really interesting thing was is that on the outside to everybody that looked in my life seemed completely normal there would be the odd occasion where my drinking and using would create concern within my loved ones but it was quite rare i was really good at hiding it and All of those boxes that you're meant to tick in life. So, getting married, buying a house, job promotions. I was doing all of those things. So, from the outside, again, I was hiding behind this smile and nobody really knew what was truly going on for me. And I kept up this facade until there was an incident, which I I shared with people where for me, it was this sliding doors moment. And it was the day that I know that I, I went from being a heavy drinker to an alcoholic who was dependent on alcohol. And what happened there was I was down in Melbourne with my fiance at the time and we were here for a friend's wedding and it was the Saturday morning the day after the wedding. My ex and i had had a massive fight at the wedding that night because I'd gotten absolutely shit-faced, made such an ass of myself. I remember I took the microphone on the dance floor and insisted that I needed to sing to the 200 guests who were at this wedding. Nobody appreciated it. So Max was mortified. I woke up with the guilt, shame and remorse and of course I was in a filthy mood so we had this big blow-up fight. Now that was something that happened basically every weekend. But we got this phone call and we had been notified that Max's brother who lived with us at the time, he hadn't shown up for work that morning. And so we said to the friend, look, just head up to our apartment. You can jump over the balcony and you'll be able to get yourself in. And that's exactly what he did. And sadly, when he got over the balcony and into our apartment, he found Max's brother had passed away. He'd taken his own life. And we got that phone call back to be updated with what had happened. And I remember in that moment, I talk about it. It's just like the movies. It's like everything's slowed down. And I had this, again, this voice come up in my head that said, your life is never going to be the same. And that wasn't a good thing. In that moment, I had resigned to the fact that I was going to have to step into the role of caretaker for my husband. I didn't know how he was going to be able to get through this. They were incredibly close. They'd also lost their father a few years prior to that. And my husband was still grieving that. And so in that moment, for better or worse, I decided to do the only thing that I knew how to do to get rid of that pain. And that was to drink. And so from that day, I became a daily drinker. I was never a morning drinker. I would always do, it was like Groundhog Day. I'd wake up in the morning with this hideous hangover, head splitting, feeling violently ill. I'd get myself to work. I would work through the entire day. And in the morning, I would say to myself, you're not drinking again today. You're not drinking again today. And I truly believe it in my heart of hearts. And then something would happen around midday where that really violent effect of the hangover would start to lift. I'd managed to eat something, I'd have some water, and then all of a sudden the ibuprofen's kicked in and I'm thinking to myself, oh, that was maybe a bit of an overreaction we'll try it again tonight. Or, or even I'd get all the way to driving myself home. I'd be passing the bottle shop. And then all of a sudden it's like this vortex would be pulling me in and I'd get back into the car with a bottle of wine in my hand and some of those mini vodka bottles. And I'm like, how, how did this happen? I honestly, I'd be baffled. Did your husband then Was he worried? Was he concerned? Did he know? No, because he was well aware of my drinking, but he had also picked up his habit. And so he was by this time smoking weed pretty much around the clock. And because we had that really unhealthy dynamic of you don't say anything and I don't say anything, neither of us pulled each other up on the behavior. So that just continued. It was this really vicious cycle. I should mention as well that when we got that phone call, it was two weeks to the day before we were due to get married. And so that next two weeks was just a complete blur for us. The first seven days was planning a funeral, and then we had the funeral. And then seven days after that, we showed up with the same group of people to a wedding. Wow. To this, yeah, to this day, I don't know how the love of our families got us through that. I have this really weird feeling when I think back, there's this immense sadness around that day, even though there was so much love there as well. And I really, I feel feel sad for the relationship i don't think it ever was given the chance to really blossom yeah did you ever think about postponing the wedding we did we had a conversation about it and when we spoke to our family and friends everybody thought that dan would have wanted us to carry on and so we did and It's not something I regret. We were chatting just off air before. I I have this really deep faith that everything that has happened in my life has happened for a reason. And that I'm not necessarily saying losing people, but The decisions that I've made, let me say, have been guided by an inner knowing. And so I don't regret that we went ahead with that wedding because I think that everything had to play out the way it did for me to now reach the place I am in my life. And basically what the next two years looked like were a complete blur for both my ex-husband and I. He fell deeper into his addiction and I fell deeper into mine. And it got to the start of 2020 when our marriage was really hanging on by a thread and he decided that he was going to go to India to try and he was going to go and do a silent meditation retreat and really try to work on himself in the hopes that we could repair our marriage. And it was really, again, another turning point because in my head, I had always told myself that the reason I drank so much was because he was an addict. I was never able to take ownership over my own behavior. And I should preface as well that by this time, I had a lot of knowledge around addiction, specifically alcoholism. My dad had gotten sober in 2010. So I'd seen the impacts of addiction and I'd also seen what recovery looked like. But I continued to tell myself that I wasn't an alcoholic and that I didn't have a problem because I don't think I was... Well, I know now that I just wasn't ready to accept it and the idea of having to live life without this crux that I had been dependent on for 20 years was just something that I couldn't fathom. So Max went away and I thought to myself, well, here we go. I'm going to prove to everybody and I'm going to prove to myself that I, I have there's, there's nothing wrong with me and that this is all the fault of another person and the complete opposite happened. Max went away and instead of me getting sober or cutting back on my drinking, it was like my foot hit the... The pedal and off we went. And within a week I got to the point that I refer to as my rock bottom and it was a Friday evening and I decided to not go to the after work drinks that were being held at my office because by this time I really couldn't guarantee my behavior when I drunk. So I was wise enough in air quotes, to get myself home before I started drinking. So I was really drinking in secret by this point. And I happened to be down in Melbourne, staying over the weekend and I was staying with my mom. And I said to my mom, Hey mom, I'm just going to go out for one drink to meet up with a friend. And honestly, Danny, hand on heart, I thought it was going to be one drink. This was the problem. I always thought it would be one, but the reality was the minute I had one, all bets were off. And so I went out for one drink and sure enough, I got home the next morning and 8am and I remember walking through the door and seeing my mum's face and it was just, she was devastated. I think in that moment she'd lost all hope. She didn't know what she could do anymore and I can't describe the feeling other than I fell to my knees and I started crying and the words that came out of my mouth were, I need help. And it was the first time that I was really struck with this notion that all of the chaos and the carnage that had been following me over the last, in particular, the last 10 years was a result of my behavior and my actions. And I couldn't blame anyone else anymore. And I couldn't keep hurting the people that loved me. And so really that was that defining moment where I, I said, I, I need help. I can't do this. And that day we contacted a rehab up in Sydney, which is where I was living. And seven days later, I checked into that rehab. That was the 24th of February, 2020. And I haven't had a drink or a drug since. Wow. Well done. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing.
1: Ash. So just to put into context, how much were you drinking kind of thing? Like maybe not that
0: last night, but mm. generally day to day, how much were you drinking? So on an average day to day, I got the same thing every day. I'd always go home and I'd get a bottle of red wine and then I'd get a half bottle of vodka. So I can't remember what size it is. I think maybe 350 is half a bottle, 350 ml. And I generally have those. And then sometimes if I couldn't make it home, I'd also get a couple of those really little mini bottles. So I'd have maybe three or four of those before I walked in the door and I would hide those in my underwear drawer. And then I would put the vodka in the fridge and I would sip that throughout the night, but actually in front of whoever I was with sit on the glass of wine. So what I was trying to do was create the appearance that all I was having that night was the one bottle of wine. But unfortunately, the progression of this disease within me meant that by the time I got to the end of my drinking, that bottle of wine barely touched the sides. And so I was needing to drink something that was going to get that effect faster. What were you looking for in the alcohol? I was looking for that piece that I found in that very first time I drank because I had never developed any emotional sobriety whatsoever. And what I mean by that is, you know, they say that you stop developing emotionally at the age you start drinking. So for me, that was 12 years old. So I wasn't able to sit in discomfort. I truly believed that those feelings were going to kill me. It was unbearable. And so what I'd learned to do from such an early age was to take myself out of that feeling, that instant gratification when you take a drink or a drug, and then I don't have to deal with it. And then it would pass. And even despite the consequences that were starting to come up, the more I drank, I didn't know any other way. I didn't know there was another way. And so I kept going back to it.
1: That's the madness of it all, isn't it? That you wake up and there's the consequences there. And even though we see the consequences, we feel them, we're the ones feeling them. Still, we can't quite get ourselves to realize that it's this thing that's causing it, or we can't pull ourselves away from it.
0: And it's that definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And like I said, I had family members in AA that had shown me there was another way, but alcohol had become my best friend. It was my confidant. Often we hear this term, terminal uniqueness. I kept telling myself that my situation was different and that it wouldn't work for me. There was this ignorance that I had because I hadn't even really given it a shot. I'd gone to a couple of AA meetings between 2010 and 2020. I'd say I'd gone to half a dozen meetings when I'd gotten to a point where I'd really blown my life up and I'd call my dad and I'd say, "You know, dad, I need help. And he'd take me to a meeting, but I'd just sit there with almost this indifference. I just wasn't there to really hear the message. And I, I didn't, I didn't know that there was anything to do with steps, anything about getting a sponsor. I kind of just sat there, gritted my teeth for the hour and then left and thought to myself, I know what I'll do. I'll just control my drinking better next time.
1: Do you think if your dad hadn't have been in AA, you would have known that that was something that was available, even that it was a problem? Because you know where you said you went out all night, like I went out all night, lots of times, and then Mm. never kind of thought, oh my God, I need help. What was it about, sorry, I'm loading you up with two questions here. What was it about that event that made you realize that you needed help? That's Mm. the first part of the question. Then I'll ask you the second part of the question.
0: Sure thing. So The really interesting thing about that Friday night, it was the 14th of February, 2020 was that it wasn't really different to any other big night that I'd had. You know, I didn't necessarily drink any more than normal or consume any more drugs than I normally would on a Friday night going out with a couple of friends. But it was the look on my mum's face when I walked in the door the next morning. I'd been dishonest with her about where I'd been. And in that moment, I just couldn't take it anymore. The shame was palpable. I honestly wanted the world to open up and swallow me whole. And I just couldn't keep doing that because if you remember, in 2014, I moved to Sydney. And what that meant was that a lot of my behavior wasn't visible to my close friends and family. And so I was able to get away from it. And the other thing I know to be true is that by the time I'd gotten to that point in 2020, I really didn't have any self-love or self-worth or self-esteem left in me. And so what that meant was I almost didn't really care that I was destroying my life. But when I realized the impact it was having on those around me, it's almost like I got this jolt where it like woke me back up and I was like, hang on a minute, Ash, this isn't just about you. Exactly. Yeah. When you realize it's not just about you, it's it's a
1: bit of a it's a wake-up call. I mean, obviously you were drinking a lot. What about drinking so much was kind of ruining your life?
0: I mean, it's funny. I can only answer that question with hindsight because in the last three years, my life has changed beyond anything I could ever imagine. So while I was drinking as I said, I was ticking all of those life's boxes. So it was actually really difficult for me to have that sign that I needed to stop. And the other thing about my drinking, which I'm sure a lot of heavy drinkers can relate to, is that I surrounded myself with people who drank and drugged like me. So I really didn't have anybody telling me that my behavior was out of line or calling me out on my bullshit because we were kind of all doing the same thing. It was really normal to drink the amount I was drinking and get a bag or two over the weekend. But my insides were starting to get blacker and blacker. And I couldn't put my finger on it at the time, but it's almost like whatever light I had, it was this candle and it was slowly going out. And I was just starting to feel less and less like a person. I was just becoming almost like this physical body moving through the earth, but I was soulless. It was a really scary place to be. And I felt really empty inside it's like being controlled
1: by something else. So it's like you are just this kind of robot cruising along Mm. and alcohol's taking control over the body, over the mind, over the soul, over everything. So here's the second part of my question. So to be surrounded by people that are in the same kind of situation, they're doing the same thing. Mm. That's how we normalize what's going on. Do you think if your dad hadn't have been in recovery that you may not have seen that? Because obviously he's giving you a kind of a beacon of light or a point of difference,
0: I guess, to Mm. everyone else that you were surrounded by. Absolutely. This is part of the reason I'm so passionate about sharing stories of people in recovery. And I know you feel the same way because despite the fact that I had an immediate example of recovery, I still hadn't seen or met anyone that was like me. And so I found it really hard to find that reality or be able to conceptualize a life sober that I'd be happy in. So to go back to your question, I absolutely do think that my dad being in AA was guiding me to this path. I think that I was probably born an alcoholic and that I was on this trajectory to end up in the rooms of AA at one time in my life. It probably was looking to be more like around my mid-40s until that incident happened. It was that sliding doors moment where things fell into a pattern that I couldn't get out of and things started to unravel. Had that not happened, I think that I'd probably still be drinking today because I just couldn't get my head around the idea of stopping. I'm incredibly grateful that I had my dad, but at the same time, like I said, I was convincing myself that it wouldn't work for me. And I was convinced that a life without alcohol would be boring and that there'd be no point being around anyway. I would lose all my friends. Like who would I be without alcohol? I had so much of my identity wrapped up in being a party girl, the fun one, all of these crazy ideas. But now I see that none of that was actually true. Getting sober and working out who I actually am as a person, I've realized so much of what I thought my identity was, was tied up in this drinking and this partying. The reality is I actually love to be quiet. I love to think, to reflect, to meditate. Part of the reason I was always being drawn to this party girl persona was because when I was in that world, I didn't have to connect back to myself. It was all about the externals and what I was giving out rather than having to go inwards because it was just way too scary. I didn't, I don't think I even knew how to, and now it's the complete opposite where I just, I prefer to spend a lot more time going in. And sure, like being social and catching up with friends is still really beautiful, but it certainly looks very different these days.
1: Yeah. If that was your persona and your label that you'd created for yourself and the way that people saw you, how did that land with your friends? Mm. Also, you said you were surrounded by those sort of people. So did you have to make new friends or did your old friends
0: accept you as you were? So I've had the experience of both where I there are people in my life that I partied with that are no longer in my life. And that wasn't necessarily a decision that I made. It just naturally happened that they started to fall away. I'm so blessed that I've got a group of girlfriends that I've known since I was in primary school and they've stuck around and they have seen me at my worst and they've seen me at my best and they're still there to this day. I may not necessarily be as close with everyone but but the relationships that I have maintained that have actually gone through in particular these last three years, as I've started to rediscover who I am, those relationships are blossoming and they're beautiful and they look so different today. So rather than us catching up over a glass of wine, we go for a walk along the beach or we go to practice yoga together and we're teaching each other how to be vulnerable and how to be honest. And I'm, it's, it's so, so powerful. And I... Again, it was this false truth that I had around this idea that I wouldn't be able to maintain these relationships, but the reality has been that they've actually gotten so much better.
1: Yes, I agree too. So Lyndall Hunt, who's been on this podcast lots, and she works with me as well in my challenge groups. We've known each other since grade six, so all of our lives. And in the last few years through her recovery and through me going sober and everything we're both learning, our relationship has really changed. And it's almost like a getting to know you all mm. over, all over again. Like we know each other's history. We know each other's ins and outs, but this way in which we relate to each other is very different, probably to how I relate to my other friends. It's respectful, it's gentle, it's very kind, mm. it's considerate, mm. so beautiful, very different to how our relationship used to be. And it's, I, I love that, that your whole, someone you've known your whole life, just because of the trajectory you're on, could just change that relationship so much and you change the way in which you are with one another. It's, beautiful. yeah.
0: And I think it's about finding out what works for each of your individual relationships. Like I have another friend of mine, he's, an incredible human being. And we used to party a lot together when I lived in Sydney. And then I got sober. And part of that story of my sobriety is that I actually moved back to Melbourne. My marriage ended when I turned a year. They basically, they tell you not to make any big decisions in your first 12 months. So at around 12 months sober, we made the decision to end that marriage and I moved back to Melbourne. And so I wasn't seeing that friend of mine as regularly. And it's taken us almost two and a half years to work out that sweet spot of how we work now. But we've found that, you know, we both don't love being on the phone for a really long period of time. So now we just get connect once or twice a year. We go away together for a few nights and that's what works for us. And then I'll have another girlfriend who might live in Melbourne with a couple of kids. And so that relationship again needs to look different. So it's just about having these really open, clean lines of communication and being able to work that out as they come up i think rather than assuming that it needs to look a certain way or things can't change
1: well one of my best friends lisa who actually got me started on this whole thing i remember at the 12 month mark her saying all right well that's that's done good <laughs> when are we having a drink together? I said, I'm I'm not, I'm I'm not. And she was disappointed. Mm. And although our relationship didn't change, we were big drinkers together. That's what we always did. Or at least I was big drinking around her and she likes to party, but she's a lot more in control than I was. Mm. And that relationship, it's still much the same as it's always been. But I think some friends there's that initial kind of little bit of I wouldn't say always disconnection, but that just like you say, it takes time for sometimes for your old friendships to resettle into this mm. new way of being. And some it won't work. But then other people, I guess that you're close to, they just they have to find their feet again, and you have to figure out how it all sits
0: Absolutely. with you being a
1: sober person.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I was just chatting to somebody about this yesterday, but again, it, for me, it comes back to that faith of knowing that I'm being guided by something greater than me, and I really trust now that. If there are people that are being removed from my life, it's because there's being space created for somebody new to step in, and I'm okay with that today. So it's less about me needing to control things and wanting things to go a certain way, the way I think they need to be, and just knowing that it's all going to happen just as it's yes, meant to. Yes, I love that, and just
1: that being open to. Have you read the Surrender Experiment by Michael? Yes, yeah. yes, I love that book. That was quite life changing. At that, mm. just let go let go and just surrender to what's happening it doesn't mean you have to become non motivated or that you don't have goals but you can just accept when something big's happening just accept it surrender let it go and i think once you do that there's always something waiting
0: around the corner so mm. something and it's never failed me mm, it's never so failed true me. We talk about, there's a saying in the rooms that you wear life like a loose garment. And that really resonates with me because I used to wear life like a straight jacket. So to be able to have oh, that, love you know, that. you just, you just be in the flow, be in the stream of life and let things happen. And it's just, it's such a beautiful place to be. Life is so much easier when you're not trying to fight or resist against it. Oh.
1: So true. So true. And that includes the changing of friendships for someone who's listening and they're feeling that "Eh," because their relationships might be changing, just allow it to happen, allow the changes to happen and step back and take yourself out of it and just let it unfold. Also, sometimes when you step back a bit and you're not so desperately clinging on to something, Mm, mm. it just makes so much space for things to evolve as they need to. And I think often the friends come back in a new way with a newfound respect. Exactly. Right. Well, absolutely. So tell me, so you went off to rehab. Yes. Give me a fucking glimpse of what's that (laughs) like in there.
0: (laughs) Give me a, a day in the life of rehab. Yeah, for sure. So I was really, really nervous about going to rehab, but I had actually been there before. Now, that might sound a little confusing. It wasn't for me. So I had a family member attend this same rehab about six years prior to myself getting sober. And when they finished their three weeks of Impatient. we were invited as a family to go into the rehab and do what's called family program. So it was four days where we would go into the rehab each day and we would learn what the family member had gone through. We were explained the developmental model of immaturity, which is was written by Pia Melody, which really helps to explain codependency and all of the different ways that that can play out through addictions, substance abuse, process addictions. I was familiar with, with South Pacific. And again, that was another reason why when I hit that rock bottom, I kind of knew where to go if I was ready. And so what did it look like? Well, I stayed in Melbourne for that final week. And it's really interesting because I knew I was going into rehab and I know I've spoken to a lot of people who've gone into rehab and they either get really messed up In the days leading up, often they arrive into rehab drunk. But remember, I'm this goody two-shoes perfectionist who's really concerned about what everyone thinks of me. So I was a, pretty much a teetotaler for that last week. I was still drinking about a bottle of wine a night, but I remember my final night before I went in there, I was still staying with my mom. I had a bottle of red wine. I smoked a packet of cigarettes. And then the next morning I got up at 6am and I flew back up to Sydney. My mother-in-law picked me up and she drove me over to South Pacific, which is located in the Northern beaches. So it was just over an hour's drive. And when I got in there. They the first thing they do is they take your photo and they give you like a key tag that you have to wear around your neck. Is it and like I've a mugshot? S- is it like a Yes. Oh my god. Yes. Have you got the photo? I do and I can it's Oh my gosh, <laughs> I will share it with you. Please. It's it's yeah, I'm unrecognizable. Let's just say that. Oh my god. Can that. You please send me that. Yeah. I will 100%. Right. Yep. It's out there. I'm I'm, I'm owning it. And look, right. it's a really good reminder. If I ever think that going back there is a good idea, then I just need to take one look at this photo. Anyhow, so you get in there and they do your admission. And then, so South Pacific Private is a hospital. It's a psychiatric hospital. So when you go in there, they take you into one of the rooms and this room that I was put into after they'd done all of my bloods and my vitals, they took me into this room right opposite the nurse's station. And you stay there depending on what you're on, what you're coming off. You stay there for one, two, three nights. But I remember sitting there, I sat up on the hospital bed, which as you know, they're not the most comfortable of things. And the nurse started to go through all of my belongings. And I was thinking to myself, what's going on here? And what I didn't realize at the time was they were looking for either A, concealed drugs and alcohol, or B, anything that I could use to self-harm. So my hairdryer was taken away because that's got a long cord, nail clippers, any of that kind of stuff is removed. Wow. Now this particular rehab, you're not allowed to smoke cigarettes either. So it was quite a vigilant process that they went through to check all of my belongings. And then I was basically... Can I ask a question? I have to ask this. Of course. Did they like cavity search you? (laughs) They did not. (laughs) Thankfully, thankfully they did not. No. But they are checking your vitals every few hours. So if you had managed to sneak something in, they're going to know about it pretty quickly. And so they stayed. I stayed in that monitoring unit overnight, and then the next day I was put into. I suppose this is going to sound like a prison term, but it's not general population. <laughs> and <then laughs> I, was, I was out. I was out with my fellows, and within the next day I was put into a, a group. So there's different coloured groups, and they, that's your sort of like your base therapy group. And from there, every day looks pretty similar. You wake up in the morning. We were allowed to go for a supervised walk for about 30 minutes just around along the beach which was beautiful and then we'd come back we'd have breakfast and then we'd go into there'd normally be a morning seminar which would be on a different topic so something like codependency or love addiction really really fascinating information all of this knowledge that I was absorbing while I was there it really laid the foundation for the recovery that I have today and then you'd go into group therapy and you'd be in group therapy with around six other people And that's where you'd start to do the process of what's called a timeline. So your timeline is where you look at your life from naught to 17 and you start to identify any key events that happened throughout your life. And this was a really, really big moment for me because I had come into rehab all smiles, you'll see the photo. I'm beaming from ear to ear because that was my default was to smile, to hide behind that smile, hence the name of the podcast. And so as a result of that, I actually thought I'd had a really charming upbringing. I didn't know that there'd been anything that would be considered trauma. And when I got to the end of my first week and I presented or shared my timeline back with my group, I still remember the look on my therapist's face. She was like, Ash, number one, you smiled through the entire hour of you sharing that. And number two, like there is some significant trauma in your life that we need to address. And so that was actually really eye-opening for me. It was the first time that I'd been given permission to acknowledge what had actually happened. For the first time through that awareness and that acknowledgement, I was able to understand why life was so intolerable for me and why i was seeking that escape or that oblivion or that peace at the end of a bottle are you so, able to give any examples just to share
1: with the audience about how that may have looked or
0: yeah of course so it's a really interesting topic because trauma as you would know can come in many different facets and many different ideas and i had always thought to myself that I had never personally experienced any form of sexual assault. I'd never been physically beaten. Well, actually, I'm seeing, again, I'm minimizing. I'd had, I had a, a boyfriend that was violent, but I do, I minimize these things. And to this day, I still do that. But there were things like when my dad would say that he was going to come home and he didn't. So mum would say, yeah. We'd be sitting at dinner on Friday night and I'd say, where's dad? And she said, well, he's gone out for lunch. We don't know when he's going to get home. Mm-hmm. Little things like that. There was an, also an incident at my school when I was a performer and we were doing a dress rehearsal and it was the night before the show and one of the other children or well, yeah, he was a child at the time, had come to the school with a knife and we'd all been locked in. And that was an incredibly terrifying experience. And at the time when that happened, I would have been about 15, I think. And I actually called my brother because my parents weren't around. I couldn't get onto them. And my brother who was underage got the keys from my dad's car and drove to the school to pick me up and took me home. And so all of these, there's so much complexity in all of that again.
1: Well, the fact of not being even able to get onto your parents, when you're going through such a, a big ordeal. But what mm-hmm. Gabor Mate says, it's not necessarily the big T traumas that cause the disconnection or the trauma that goes on for a child. It's not what happens to the child, it's the internalisation of that. So mm-hmm. not being able to go to a parent, not feeling safe enough to express how they're feeling
0: mm-hmm. and when they
1: end up choosing, like you are talking about earlier at the start, when they're choosing attachment over authenticity. Mm-hmm. That's when the disconnection happens and that's where the trauma lies within the body. Exactly. So it can just be not feeling attuned to a parent or not being able to talk to a parent about feelings or what's going on for the child is very traumatic.
0: Exactly right. And I'm so grateful for the relationship I have with both of my parents today. They're no longer together. They separated when I was 18. And that was also not a pretty experience at the time. So I always mention that I have a really beautiful relationship with each of my parents today, but that took A really long time and a lot of I had to be able to understand and unpack all of this to be able to forgive them and I have wholeheartedly forgiven them today because what I now understand and I know to be true is that they were parenting off the skill set that was given to them from their parents and their parents parented the way they were parented and so like we said at the top of the show it's this generational trauma that comes down generation to generation and monkey see monkey do so until there's a break in that chain it's going to end up the same. So I don't hold any animosity towards my parents at all. I truly believe they were doing the best thing that they could do. But it was just such an eye-opening experience. And to be explained, this concept of codependency because what I now understand codependency to be, is it's a result of growing up in a dysfunctional or less than nurturing environment. And I had truly believed that I couldn't possibly be codependent because I was anti-dependent because the way I responded to my parents not being around much was to become really self-sufficient and really self-reliant. But that almost backfired because then I wouldn't let anyone close to me. So I I was almost walled. I didn't have any concept of boundaries. I wouldn't let anyone in. And that became a really lonely, isolated place to be. But at the same time, I've got this chronic people pleasing going on because I need to make sure at all times that you like me and that you approve of me. So at the end of the day, if I can describe that feeling in one word, it was just this immense loneliness. Yeah,
1: because I know some people think, oh, I don't want to go digging up the past. I don't want mm. to blame anyone. It's not about that. It's being, firstly, it's just being understood, mm. understanding yourself, having someone else witness you and say, hey, you've had a lot of trauma. Don't minimize what you know mm. happened to you. And having an addicted parent is very traumatic because you never know what you're going to get. Exactly it's very right. dysregulating for a child. Okay. So you had going back to rehab day in the life of, yeah. you're out there in general population and then a group <laughs> therapy and you just you're sharing all your stuff. And what's it like? Also, what did you eat for breakfast?
0: <laughs> oh, that's a really good question. Gosh, what was the food like? So there was no sugar, no caffeine. Now this Ooh. isn't, ne- I know this isn't necessarily the rule in rehabs. I believe I was at a particularly strict rehab, but the idea there is that people that go to South Pacific, they're not necessarily just there for drug addiction or alcohol addiction. They could be there for depression, anxiety, food addiction, sex addiction, gambling. So they need to cater for everyone. So removing sugar is really important and caffeine as well, because a lot of people will put down one substance and replace it with another. So they're eliminating that. So I'm pretty sure from memory breakfast was pretty basic, maybe a bit of toast, maybe some Vegemite. It was nothing really that exciting. I'm a foodie. I need to know these things. Yeah, that's fair enough. And look, I should mention as well, I suffered with bulimia and anorexia when I was 14. I was went through periods there where I was really restricting my food consumption. One stage, I think I was living off an apple a day and I did share that during my intake. I was completely honest with them. And so they actually put me on a specific table for people who had food difficulties. And so what that meant was at the start of every meal, we actually had to check in and let the rest of the table know how we were feeling and give a rating of our hunger. And then at the end of the meal, they would sort of watch how quickly you ate, whether you ate, whether you were hiding food, all of those sorts of behaviors. And then at the end of the meal, we would check in again and talk about how we were feeling. So it was just, again, creating awareness around that. So that was in addition to the rest of the tables who were a little bit more free range with with their food consumption. And so that would be breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And then Of an evening, you would be sent to a 12-step meeting based off what you were in treatment for. So for me, I was mainly sent to AA meetings and NA meetings, but of course there's also 12-step recovery programs like Al-Anon. If you are, say, like myself, the daughter of an alcoholic, then that might be applicable to you or if you're in a relationship with an addict or an alcoholic. They also have CODA, which is for codependency because a lot of people that have substance abuse issues are codependent. And like I said, they're using a substance to help deal with that feeling of either not having a connection to self or having a fractured relationship with others around them. So you would go to these different 12-step meetings. This was the first time, as I mentioned, I'd been to a couple beforehand, but it was while I was in rehab, it was about 10 days in. And I'd been going to AA pretty much every day And it was about, it wasn't until about 10 days in, I think the fog had lifted for me a little bit. And I was starting to get some clarity around the reality of my situation. And I remember identifying in that meeting and saying, Hi, my name's Ash. I'm an alcoholic. And it was the first time that I believed it. And in that moment, I felt this wash of relief run through every inch of my body. And for the first time in my life, I thought, Oh my God, I think it's all going to be okay. Because finally, I felt like I had a solution. And finally, I understood that this difficulty with my relationship with alcohol was not a moral failing. And it was explained to me that I'm not a bad person. I'm a sick person. And with that, I had this hope and this beacon that I was able to move towards because I was looking around the room and I was seeing all of these incredible humans laughing and joyful. And they were showing me that again, that idea that I had, that life couldn't be enjoyable without alcohol. It was right there in front of me that that just simply wasn't the case. Wow. I mean, that's what gives you hope too, doesn't it? That's mm. That life can actually be
1: enjoyable without alcohol, which is pretty much why a lot of us show our side or a, a portion of our lives on Instagram and things like that to inspire people to say, you know, life's pretty good. Not always, but it Mm. can actually be joyful. You can have fun, all those things without Mm. alcohol. So just to see other people experiencing joy is so helpful. So the sort of people that are in the rehab, Mm. are they just like you? I mean, you're very pretty. So no one's in there. It's not like tough, like jail and they're going to head slam you into the wall. Oh no, it's, it's
0: all walks of life. It's, (laughs) it's, it's everyone. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Did you have cravings in there? Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. Incredibly. How so how did you deal? How did I deal with it? Well, this is one of the benefits of being in rehab and the reason that I, I needed rehab. I know that that's not necessarily everybody's story or everybody is, is it available to everyone, but I needed to be physically removed from alcohol because I had developed such a strong response to drinking on a feeling. So like I said that I just had no emotional sobriety. Every yeah. time I had a feeling, whether that was good, bad, happy, sad, I would drink. And when I was in that rehab, I had alcohol physically removed from me. It was no longer an option. So I had to learn how to sit in the discomfort. And the only way I learned was by doing. And so there were days when the cravings were just so overwhelming and I had this incredible support team around me. I had a doctor, I had a nurse, I had a therapist. There were people on call 24 seven and I would go and speak to them. I would speak to my peers who were in the exact same situation, going through those same experiences. Sometimes they would literally say, just go have a lie down, let it pass. If you can That's journal. amazing.
1: Yep. Yeah, sorry. I have to, because this is so important for people listening. Cause a lot of times, you know, we talk about it a lot, sit with your feelings, sit with your feelings. Mm. A lot of people might go, well, how the fuck do you do? But it's so true. It's like, go have a lay down or go Mm -hmm. sit down and just take some deep breaths or put your forehead into your hands for a bit and Mm. take some breaths. Mm. But I love that. Go
0: have a lay down. Exactly. Right. right. It'll pass. It will pass. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just over time, you know, with that neuroplasticity, where the more we start to change our behaviors and then we get consistent with the changed behavior, we start to rewire those neural pathways. Mm -hmm. Until eventually that becomes the default response, not picking up a drink, but it takes time. And I got out of rehab after three weeks and I still had moments because I went back into a house with an active addict, which had been my number one trigger. Mm. But I just threw every tool at that until probably I would say around the six month mark where the desire to drink was completely removed. And I don't think I've really had a craving since.
1: Wow. Six month mark. Okay, great. I've got a few questions for you. So firstly, if it's okay for me to ask, mm. what does it cost for someone? Cause that sounds amazing. Like I want to go to rehab mm. now, just hearing this, mm. <laughs> like talk about your feelings and have therapists. Oh. What does it cost for three
0: week for a three week stint somewhere like that? So, I had private health cover and I was actually already on top hospital because my husband and I had been trying to fall pregnant for about two years. So, I had the ability that when I was ready, I was able to go straight in there and all I had to pay was the excess on my health cover, which was about $500. Okay. And do you know what someone would have to pay if they didn't have private
1: health cover? It's in the thousands. Yeah, it would be like tens of thousands, do you think or? Yeah. Yeah, wow. Well, okay. Yeah. So it's difficult, isn't it? Like it's not it's, accessible
0: for everyone. No, that's exactly mm. right. And so if you are listening to this right now and you're thinking that that's something that you'd like to do, like I highly encourage you to look at whether or not the cost of bumping up health cover or getting private health insurance, if that's something that you'd be open to doing. I think the waiting period is about 3 months. That's what my husband ended up doing. After I got out and I was sober and I said to him, look, I think for this relationship to continue, like I'm going to need to be in a relationship with someone that's clean, that's exactly what we did. We then went and got his health cover sorted. We waited out the, the waiting period and then he went in and got treatment as well. But at the same time, there are, of course, other rehab facilities out there where you they're not private and there's long-term rehabs and there's lots of other ways to go about it. So, And mm-hmm. if all else fails, like getting yourself to an AA meeting, connecting with the sober online community. There are so many ways to step into this world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, we're sort
1: of running low on time, but I do really want to ask you about life after rehab. So Mm. dealing with the triggers, like with your husband and how did you do life
0: on the other side? So they say that the hard work begins when you leave and that was absolutely the case for me. The first 12 months of my sobriety were really, really painful. Learning how to do life on life's terms without anything to numb the edges is really hard. And I had 20 years of doing life a certain way and I had to almost learn to walk again. I often describe early sobriety as like being like a baby giraffe and you've got these long gangly legs and you're kind of falling all over the place. And I was messy. I made mistakes, but at the end of the day, I didn't pick up a drink. I stayed really, really close to the program. I got out of rehab and about two weeks later, the world went into lockdown. So I got sober on Zoom. It was really interesting because one of the biggest things that is a cornerstone to my recovery is my community and the connections that I've made. And I really didn't do that in the first 12 months. I didn't have a lot of friends in recovery because I wasn't going to meetings. I didn't have that fellowship around me, but I remained vigorously honest. I would speak to my dad a lot who was in recovery. So if you just have another sober person that you know They're going to know exactly what you're going through. This is one of the great things about having a community around you is you can call someone up and share your crazy and nine times out of 10, they will have experienced exactly what you're going through, particularly if they have a little bit more time up than you. And so I was doing that. And then the other thing that I developed, which was Instructed really early on was to develop a really solid morning routine. So what that looks like for me, and I still do that to this day is I get up, I go to my meditation chair, I sit and I meditate for a period of time. And that changes depending on what my day looks like. I pray, I didn't have any concept of God or a higher power before I got into recovery, but it was suggested to me that I start to develop that relationship. And it's something that I took really seriously. And at first, for the first probably 12 to 18 months, I felt like a bit of an idiot. It didn't really feel authentic. And I felt like a bit of a phony, but I kept doing it because I was taking the advice of those who'd walked the path before me. And it's often said, you know, if you want what they've got, do what they do. And so I continued to do that and I kept praying. And now at three years sober, I've got this really beautiful relationship with my higher power and it is something greater than me. And it's, again, it allows me to let go of the reins and to step into that stream of life and just be so much more peaceful. And so that's the morning routine. It's prayer, it's meditation. I write a gratitude list and I send that off to a group of women and we share that with each other every day. And then the final thing that I do is I I turn and I ask, you know, how can I best be of service today? How can I do something for someone else and be useful in this world? And that really helps me to get off myself and to find purpose and meaning in life. Wow. That's awesome. I love a really good morning routine
1: and all those Mm. things. You know the gratitude practice and being of service. I love that, and I also love that you share your gratitude practice with a group of people. I think that's absolutely beautiful. What a beautiful thing to
0: do! It's awesome getting to read theirs. Yeah, it's the best.
1: It's so nice. So, in these three years, have you had a time where you've like nearly done it? Where you've nearly gone to the bottle shop? Can you talk about that? What happened Mm. and how you got through it?
0: Yeah, this is a really great question, and I have a specific time that comes to mind. So at 11 months sober, it was January, 2021. And I missed my brother's wedding. Now the backstory to that is that I was living in Sydney, my brother who was marrying one of my best friends in the whole world. They lived in Melbourne and right before Christmas of 2021, the borders shut. And I had a split decision of whether or not to get back down to Melbourne. And I assessed the situation and I thought my marriage is literally falling apart here. I can't leave my husband a week before Christmas. I need to stay. And I was praying that the borders would reopen within a month so that I could get down. And long story short, we all know now that didn't happen. And so the day of the wedding was one of the most excruciatingly painful days of my life. Not only was I missing the most important day of my brother's life and he's so, so special to me. Also, Hannah, my best friend, it was just, I couldn't imagine not being there. And in addition to that, my marriage was over. I knew that by this time. And so what did I do on that day? I was really aware that I was going to be vulnerable. So the first thing is it's about having awareness and being really clear what could maybe trip me up and what support can I put in place to make sure that doesn't happen. And so what I ended up doing was I went to Alex, the friend of mine who I mentioned earlier, I went to his house and I stayed with him throughout the day. And my dad called me on FaceTime so that I could sit in for the ceremony. And I was I watched it from through the phone and I cried and I was happy. I was sad. I was every emotion under the sun, but I had my best friend there with me and he just kept rubbing my leg and letting me know it was all going to be okay. And then once the ceremony was over, we actually went and we had a bite to eat. And then we went back to his house and we watched a movie. And then I got another phone call at about 10 o'clock from the dance floor so that I could see everyone again and be a part of that day. And that was it. But I, I stayed with someone the whole day because I, it was too risky for me to be alone. And I absolutely wanted to drink in that moment. So whilst I said that desire had shifted at about six months, that was one occasion where my head, everything in me was telling me to drink because the pain, the emotional pain was so, so strong. Wow. And how did you feel the next day after you'd woken up and you'd got through it without drinking? I was so relieved. Yeah. You know, I've had on not so much anymore, but particularly in the first couple of years, I had really vivid drinking dreams. I think we were chatting about this the other day, that feeling of (gasps) that I get when I first wake up for that split second where I think it's real. And then the feeling that comes after, which is that wash of relief. When I know that it was just a dream, it was like that. It was just like, oh my gosh, thank God, there is nothing in this world that is worth drinking for. And I know that to be true today. Wow.
1: Amazing. Ash, thank you for sharing that story because I think it's really important for people to hear that sometimes we get rocked, but if Mm -hmm. we can just stay with it. And I love how you said that you made sure that you're with someone that day. So you Mm -hmm. really, you looked after yourself, you cared for your sobriety and you protected it.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. because this disease is a tricky one and it will tell me things that aren't true. You know, I often share with people if you identify as being an alcoholic, then you live with a brain that has this disease that tells you to drink and that tells you lies. And that's where that insanity that we talk about is. So how can you possibly make rational decisions with a brain that it's got, that's got a disease that lies to you? So that's where being able to outsource to people who really care for you and have your best interests at heart in moments where you think you might be vulnerable, particularly in those early days, I believe is a really wise thing to do.
1: Oh, so important. Absolutely so important. And also having that plan. I think we might have spoken about this on your podcast, but preempting challenges or something that could happen and how you're going to handle that. When it comes up, it's really important. So I love that, that you knew if something big comes up, I know I need to be with someone that's Mm. going to care for me and look after me. And how special to have
0: a friend like that. Oh, he's the best. Yeah. He's, he's, he's gorgeous. What's
1: one of the greatest things that you've learned about yourself in the last three years of sobriety? What surprised you the most about yourself?
0: I think the biggest thing I've learned about myself is that I actually really like the person that I am. I think all of those years of not actually knowing who Ash is because I was so busy focusing on who I needed to be to make sure that I was loved and that I was approved of created this huge divide between my authentic self and the person that I was projecting to the rest of the world. And what's happened over the last three years is that divide has started to lessen and lessen and lessen. And what I've come to realize is that my self-worth has nothing to do on what other people think of me. And that has just been so freeing. It's amazing, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, that's a what a beautiful, what a beautiful
1: realisation to have. That's absolutely gorgeous. And then finally, if you could go back in time and speak to little 12-year-old Ash, what would you say to her and what advice would you give her?
0: Oh, this one makes me a bit emotional, you know. On the one hand, like I said, I'm, I'm actually grateful for every single part of my story because I truly believe that I needed to go through absolutely everything to be where I'm at today. But if I could go back and speak to her, which I've actually done many times now through somatic therapy and more intensive work, but just telling her that those core beliefs that I had convinced myself were the truth, like I'm unlovable, I'm unworthy, I'm not good enough. I would tell her that they are simply untrue. That's beautiful. Well, Ash, Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I could probably talk to you for hours.
1: <laughs> know. I've got a coaching call starting at, at 1 30. So I'm like, oh no. But um I, I could talk to you just on and on and on. It's just been an absolute honor and a pleasure to speak to you today and to hear your story. And I
0: just really thank you for, for being here. Oh, it's been such a joy. Thank you so, so much for having me, Danny.
1: Thank you so much. And if anyone wants to check out Ash. Check out her podcast. It's called Behind the Smile. It's available where all good podcasts live. And if anyone wanted to contact you via is it Instagram? Is that the best way, Ash?
0: Absolutely. Instagram at Ash Butters. I've also got my website, AshButters.com. That's two S's on Butters, Mm -hmm. uh, where you can reach me there as well. Awesome. Amazing. And where are you teaching yoga? I am teaching yoga down in Melbourne. I'm at Core Plus Studios. I teach across Port Melbourne, Cheltenham, and Brighton.
1: Beautiful. Awesome. Well, I'd love to do a
0: downward dog with you one day, next time in New Melbourne. Amazing.
1: We will make that happen for sure. (laughs) Excellent. Thank you so much, Ash. I'll see you soon.
0: Thanks, Danny. Bye. Bye.